There's a strong narrative about God um, that is running around in our world. And I encountered this narrative a couple of times over the last month or so in interacting with people who were not part of the church, who wouldn't identify themselves as Christians. Um, on one occasion, I was with a couple others in this parish, and we, we met with someone who uh, wanted to talk a little bit about God. And uh, the first words out of his mouth, I can't repeat in, in this place at this moment, but they were, God is a blank. And, uh, and so we kind of started out on a, a pretty aggressive note and went forward from there. Um, the narrative that was running around in this young man's life was the fact that God is actually out to get us. God is, is there to repress what is really me, who I really am. He's there um, as an oppressor and a repressor that keeps me from living life to the fullest. And we encounter this, I encountered it again um, in, in another conversation. It's just constantly out there that this is what God is all about, isn't it? He's a killjoy. It's like we're all having a great time dancing to the music and God walks in the room and just pulls the amps out of the, out, the, the plug out of the wall and all of a sudden everything goes quiet and he's like, you know, you can't do this anymore. And that's that kind of, that's one of the ways that people perceive God in the world. Um, and I want to say this, I want to say something carefully here, but one, one of the reasons that I would suggest that this, this is the case is because sometimes the church is known far more for what we're against than what we're for. And so we have to be aware of what it is that we are as a people and as a person, as an individual, and as a corporate community, um, both individual churches and the church more broadly. What are we communicating to the world? Or, and maybe it's not even that. Maybe it's what is the world hearing and, and, and understanding from us? And just a caution that sometimes I think people have this impression of God because all they hear us say all the time is no, 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 no. And so there's that, that potential out there for us um, to perpetuate this narrative. On the flip side, there's a reality to this narrative, right? Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that God makes demands of his people. God is the creator. God is the ultimate authority in all of life and practice. God is the ultimate judge says to his world, this is the way it should be. And in a culture where autonomy, where self-governing, where deciding what I can do when I want to do it is, in a sense, the greatest value that we hold, when you bring someone into the equation who says, well, no longer can you do everything that you want to do if you want to follow me, then, then there is a sense in which that narrative that people are spinning out there about God um, actually is genuinely true. Nobody really likes to play second fiddle in our culture. We like to play first, and we like to be in the control seat. We like to make the judgment calls. So there's a reality about that that is out there. If, if in fact, my joy or my life is dependent upon me making all of the decisions about what I can and cannot do and how I should and should not live, then anyone, whether it be God or whether it be my neighbor down the street who gets too much in my business that starts to tell me what to do becomes a threat, a barrier to my life and to my, at least as I understand it, to my, my joy. So here's a key question that I want to put before you in light of this narrative. Um, why does God exert his will? Why does God say things to human creatures? Why does God actually give us a way to live? Why does he speak into the world and actually make demands? And how we answer this question is critically important for how we understand both God and what he says and how he says it. The question is really, is it to repress? 
Does God speak and reveal himself to, to make us kind of cowering under him and, and to come under his authority as a sort of tyrant and slave master who's there to, to, to oppress and to repress who we are? Or is it something else? Now, obviously, I think it's something else. Um, and I think we get that. I don't think we actually do get that in this passage in John chapter 15, which is where we're going to be um, for our time together in the Word tonight. And we get it in verse 11 specifically. And I want to go right there and I want to make a very important point about God from this text right now at the beginning. So why does God speak? Jesus, verse 11, chapter 15. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The point is simply this, and we can't miss it from looking at this text which is known for a lot of other things. The point is that God speaks, God reveals Himself, God communicates to His creatures, to His world, in order that we might have life and have it abundantly, or in order that we might have joy and have it in a full measure. God speaks so that we can come to life. God doesn't speak. So the narrative that I encountered in that pub in Harvard was the narrative that says God is there to destroy me. God is there to hold me back. But God actually speaks to set us free and to, to um, enliven us and to give us life in ways that we never have experienced it before. God is a God who's a God of life and a God of joy. And anything that he communicates to his world, particularly through his word, is meant to, to produce in us life and joy. That's the God that we proclaim and the God that we believe in. That's why he sends Jesus into the world. That's why Jesus goes to the cross. That's why Jesus speaks. That's why Jesus heals people. That's why God does anything that he does is so that he can communicate and bring into his world life and joy. It's not to, to crush us. It's not to push us down. Psalm 16, which we read earlier tonight, last verse, I love it. Um, uh, For with you is a fountain of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is a great verse to memorize. This is a great verse to, to set upon your heart and to realize what God is after in us, in his world, is life, a fountain of life. What God brings, his presence, is fullness of joy. And this is a tremendously powerful counter-narrative to the common story that's being told in the world, in the city of Boston, right now, that God is there as a killjoy to pull the plug. On the other hand, quite to the contrary, the Bible and the church should always proclaim that God is a God who seeks the joy of his creatures and seeks that by speaking to us some real things. If you've got a different conception of God in your life right now, and, and we might, you know, it might be that God just feels more like heavy lifting to you. This whole Christian thing, you've been running it for a while, the race seems kind of hard and the road seems tough. Or it might be that you think that the other narrative that I was uh, talking about earlier about the killjoy thing is really how you walk in here. If that's a narrative, if that's a conception of God that you walk in here with, I pray that God would break that entirely, that he would silence that entirely and open you up to see the reality of a God who longs to pour out life and joy upon his people. Jesus says, I've spoken these things to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So here's, we've got to get a couple questions. So what, what are these things? 
I have spoken these things to you. It's pretty important then to ask, well, what are these things that Jesus speaks? That Jesus speaks that our joy might be full. What is he talking about? I mean, don't we want to know? Don't we want to hear what he has to say so that we know how to walk into the fullness of joy? Incidentally, we've been talking about joy, those of you who have been here throughout Eastertide, during this season of Eastertide, which we're still in. And we've looked at joy from a number of different angles, but we want to come back to this text to look at this question of joy in relation to these things that Jesus actually speaks and asks, what does this have, what bearing does this have upon our lives? Jesus uses a metaphor in John 15. It's a beautiful metaphor. It's an agricultural metaphor. It's a metaphor that maybe communicates a little bit more powerfully in his day than in ours, but we can still get this metaphor. We have five fruit trees in our front yard, so I'm watching them bear fruit right now. But this metaphor of a vine and branches, and branches that would bear fruit. And also there's a gardener, and that's the father. So he gives this picture of a healthy, uh, healthy vine that has multiple branches that are bearing fruit, that are bringing blessing. Branches that bear fruit, biblically speaking, is a sign of full life, abundance of life. In fact, fruit is excess of life that's, that's being born off of a tree that can be um, a blessing to people and to others around it. So this is a picture of great life flowing up, fully alive. And Jesus uses this metaphor. Now, this metaphor has lots of roots in the Old Testament, actually, in a lot of different places. Psalm 1, describing the righteous person. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. Psalm 52 refers to the righteous as like a green olive tree planted in the house of the Lord. I trust in the Lord and in his steadfast love. That's Psalm 52. Psalm 92 says similar things about um, those who follow him. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. In Jeremiah 17, a a place where this is well known, describes the righteous as, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is, is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. Okay, on, I probably overkilled that, but you get the point. This metaphor is rooted in the Old Testament. It's rooted in a picture of the righteous bearing fruit. And Jesus picks that up here and and takes that upon us. Now, in the Old Testament text that I just read, the reason that they're bearing fruit is because they're rooted in the Lord. Psalm 1, he meditates upon his instruction day and night. They have roots in God, in God and his instruction, in God and his ways, in God and what he's revealed. And so what Jesus is saying in John 15 about the vine and the branches is very, very similar to what has been said before about those who would walk in the ways of God. He says, remain in me, abide in me. A branch can't bear fruit apart from the vine. Stay rooted in me, stay deeply connected to me. This is exactly the same picture. Jesus, in this metaphor, is working with this truth. He says, you're all branches. Every single human being is a branch. So you're all a branch. The question is, are you connected to the only one vine? There is only one vine. And Jesus says, I am that vine. So a branch that's connected to the vine is a branch that will bear fruit. A branch that will, that will fulfill this picture of flourishing life and joy. But a branch... Um, that is disconnected from the source of nutrients and life flowing up from it through the vine 
is going to end up barren and fruitless, ultimately thrown into the fire and burned, Jesus says, which is a picture of death and destruction, not a picture of life and of flourishing. So when Jesus says, I say these things to you that your joy, my joy might be in you, he's saying, here's the deal, I want you to abide in me. I want you to remain in me. That's the, these things, but there's more to these things. The question is, the next question is, so how do we abide? How do we abide in the vine? If the point of life, if the, if the way to life and to true joy is to actually abide in Jesus, how do we abide in Jesus? And this is where he goes in these words. He says, abide in my love. If you keep, this is verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I've kept my father's commandments, and abide in his love. So here we go. He's saying to remain in the vine, to know true life and true joy, so that my joy might be in you, that you might be alive. I want you to abide in me, and the way that you abide in me is by keeping my commandments. So what's the next question? So what's your commandment? We're kind of following this trail right now. What is the commandment? Verse 12. This passage is the, is the place that we get um, the word for Maundy Thursday. Maundy, the Latin word mandata, means commandment. A new commandment, John 13. But we get it from here as well. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that, than that he lay down his life for his friends. A couple things to say about this. First thing we've got to note is that God loves first. His commandment, love one another as I have loved you. We've been loved. We've been deeply loved. God has moved in his world through his love in the person of his son to give us life. So let's never think and hear this word of, oh, I want you to keep my commandments and think, oh, okay, I've got to go do this apart from the wellspring of life and vitality that comes from knowing deeply that you and I are loved by the Father. We're loved deeply. It's God who loves first. It's that context that we have to see. But then there's another context we have to see for this commandment. Okay, the commandment simply, love one another as I have loved you. So where are we in the story of John's gospel? We're the night before Jesus was crucified. We're in chapter 15. In chapter 13, Jesus starts the meal with his disciples. At the beginning of the meal, what does he do? He takes off his outer garment and he wraps a towel around his waist and he washes the feet of his disciples. And that picture that he gave them there was to point to what he was going to do tomorrow, which was that he was going to go to the cross on their behalf and on our behalf and give up his life for the sake of the world that we might have true life in him. I want you to love one another as I have loved you, Jesus says. Love one another as I have loved you. So we go, gulp. That's a big, tall commandment and order from Jesus. But that's the point precisely that he's making. I've spoken these things to you. Abide in me, remain in me. How do I remain in you? Keep my commandment. What is your commandment? To love others as I have loved you. To be called to a life of sacrificial, selfless love in our world, with our neighbors, with real people around us. The life that Jesus calls us to live is a life of pouring out 
in excess. And we should think immediately, wow, there's no way that I can do that, Lord. There's no way that I know my own heart. I know how selfish I am. I know how much I like to revolve the world around me, how much I like to get and to gain. And yet, the call that he's making here is a call to pour out completely. And he doesn't say, kind of like I've loved you. It's not like love one another, sort of kind of like like we talk today, you know, sort of kind of like I love you. It's love one another as I have loved you. It's a direct correspondence he's making. I want you to live this kind of life. We can only live this kind of life in the power and the strength that Jesus provides. Once again, back to the metaphor, abiding in the vine. It's kind of wheels within wheels at this point because you abide in the vine by following his commandment, but you follow his commandment by abiding in the vine, by connectedness and rootedness to Jesus. That's the way that we live this way. So what we celebrate here tonight as we baptize Kayla, this vivid imagery and picture of being buried with Christ in his death and being raised up through the waters into new life says that the only way that we can live this life that Jesus is calling us to live and therefore the only way that we can have his joy abiding in us is that we can live it in his strength and in his power in the newness that he brings to us as his children through the resurrection of new life in him by faith. New birth. We've died. We've been raised again. And as we watch Kayla go through this process in a moment, we've got to remember that this is the process that we also walk through. There is no membership in the people of God apart from going through the waters of baptism. And we go through those waters by faith, by repentance and faith. This life that we're called to live is a life that's sustained in prayer. In verse 7, Jesus says, If you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. There's a connectedness to the Father. There's a connectedness that comes in prayer. And I want to simply illustrate this, this reality of the new life being lived in prayer by Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Where else has someone been asked to love sacrificially in such a deep way? Where else has the call to follow the Father's will actually taken someone to such great, a great wilderness, a great place of suffering? How does Jesus embrace that call? How are you supposed to embrace this call? He hits the, his, he hits the ground on his knees in prayer and he cries out before the Father, Father, if you could take this cup from me, please do, but not my will, but yours be done. And he cries out to the Father in prayer to be strengthened and renewed in this new identity, in this identity as the Son of God, in this vocation that God has given to him. And it's that strength of bond with the Father that enables Jesus then to go and take up this call with courage in obedience in faith. Only a day later on the cross. Jesus says, you know, if, a, a, if a, a piece of grain remains alone, it dies. But if it, or, or it, it doesn't bear any fruit. But if it dies, it bears, it's buried and it bears much fruit in John chapter 12. This is the way to life. This is God's invitation to all of us. The God who speaks that we might know joy. To come, to die, to pour out our lives day in and day out. So let me bring this... Um, lastly here, just to the present day, to our, our lives, this question that we've been looking at of joy in the church today. The reality is, is that for you and me, we belong, if we have confessed Christ, and if we've been, if we've been baptized, which is connected to confession of faith in the, in the New Testament, if we have walked through this path, then we belong to our God. We belong to all that he has done in Christ. 
We belong to all that he is doing in the world today by his spirit. And as we've looked in weeks past, we belong to all that he will do in the future age of resurrection and making all things new. We belong to those to these realities. And therefore, we are able to have joy because of this. But if, as we claim to belong to our, our Father, as we claim to belong to this kingdom, if we begin to pursue a kind of fruit-bearing outside of the vine, if we begin to try to live a life outside of this one way of life, this call to sacrificial, selfless love in Christ, then I propose to you that our joy will be diminished. Our joy will be diminished. If we, in a sense, compartmentalize God and say, God, you can have this sort of, this part of my life, but the rest of my life I'm going to live according to what I think is right, the way I think I should live, the things that I think I should pursue. We only give God, in a sense, the edges and and, and leave the main course, the, the center to ourselves, whether that's because of our ambitions. Or maybe it's because of our doubts. We're just not really, you know, even though we've gone through the waters of baptism, we're still feeling like we have only want to put our toe in. Not sure really, God, if you're there, so I'm going to kind of pursue, I'm going to pursue life in this other way. If we do this, if we begin to run in our own way, then what Jesus is saying here is that our joy will be diminished. Our experience of joy in the present, in the realities of resurrection, that we've been glorying in this Eastertide, will actually be diminished by our pursuit of fruit, bearing fruit, in a different kind of way. Think for a moment about the prodigal son. And maybe this can describe us in, in some small way. He's got this membership in the family. He's with the father, and yet he comes and he says, I want to go and find life in a different way than in you. And so he departs from the vine, and he spends, and he spends, and slowly and slowly but surely, the life inside of that branch is sucked out until the point at which he comes to his senses and runs back and and connects again to the vine. And there is the Father welcoming him, receiving him to come back. Um, Tonight we're called back to this place. We're called back to this place of pouring out our lives in the power of the Holy Spirit for the sake of a world around us. And I want to hear, the thing I want to communicate most of all is I want to connect deeply Jesus' words. I've spoken these things to you. Why? In other words, why are you called to this life of sacrificial love? Why are you called to imitate Jesus in your daily life with your spouse, with your neighbors, with your children, with the strangers that you meet on the streets? Why are you called to this? So that my joy may be in you. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew that he belonged to the Father. Jesus knew what his vocation was. He knew that life came from the Father. He was rooted in his Father. We've been called to this life by the power of the Spirit for the purpose of joy. I pray that we would walk in this way as the people of God so that we would know the fullness of the joy that God gives to us as his children. Today, now, tomorrow and the next day by walking with him by connecting ourselves and abiding in the vine amen